Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of July 14th, 2023. I am Charles Hain. I am here with Gigi Hawkins. Hey there. We're going to be talking about lessons from the weekend box office. Indiana Jones returns with an interesting return, which I think there are a lot of interesting filmmaking lessons to observe there. We are going to be doing a little bit of follow-up on the strike, although we are recording before we know about SAG. Mm -hmm. So those of you listening after SAG is public are going to be thinking, but what about SAG? And we're not going to talk about SAG. We're going to talk about unity. And we're going to talk about the complicated nature of unity in the film industry, Mm -hmm. because that is the big theme we are having on right now is the WGA continues on strike and we have a few others. And then to follow that up, we've got a really great Ask No Film School this week on the No Film School podcast. First subject this week, we're not really box office heavy here, but there are, but we had an interesting weekend box office, which is we had Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny making less than Insidious the Red Door. So the first thing we want to talk about is the continued relevance of like, we're in an interesting space where we are figuring out what the box office is going to look like after the pandemic, as we sort of come back to theaters. And there have been a long time where we've been relying on legacy properties. And look, I'm not saying that Insidious is not a legacy property because it totally is, right? It's Insidious. But it's a $30 million. Yeah. But it's a $30 million horror movie versus a $300 million movie. And I think that the the Blumhouse model, the we make movies that are affordable and we make enough of them that some of them ca- might hit. The reason why I wanted to talk about this specifically is because a lot of the most interesting movies the last 40 years have been made when s- the studio model used to be, we're going to make enough different movies that if some of them don't hit, it's okay. Right. And we're going to have a little bit more freedom to do some weird things. As the studio model has shifted in really the last decade to a much smaller number of bigger tentpole movies Mm -hmm. the the room there's pretty much just Blumhouse out there being like we're going to make a large number of movies and it's okay if some of them don't hit because we're going to survive based on the ones that do hit and some of Blumhouse's movies that hit hit on like literally five million dollar budgets although Blumhouse's budgets have snuck up over the last couple of years or you know you get movies like Bohemian Rhapsody from five years ago with a $50 million budget that made 900 and whatever million dollars. That's an outlier, obviously. But, you know, coming out of last weekend, Indiana Jones, The Dial of Destiny, $300 million movie. And it's, we're going to talk content here in a minute because there's some interesting lessons there in terms of indie filmmaking that I think are, are super useful. But it's also just a good reminder that, like, we all need to be making the case as hard as we can to studios whenever we have the opportunity that, like, Guys, go back to the model of making like 10 weird $20 million movies a year and hoping one of them is a breakout hit. Because that $300 movie that you think is a safe bet often isn't. Right. And like Indiana Jones is a fine movie. And I think there's like reasons to argue that it is worth seeing and fun. But like $300 million could have been 30 $10 million movies which one of them would have made the same as Indiana Jones and the Tile of Destiny. Right. And like, it's just an interesting space we're in right now where it is seen at the studio level as a much safer bet to make these like legacy productions. 
But the irony is they're putting all their eggs in one basket. And then when it doesn't deliver, there is just fallout, fallout from that. And it's not even that Indiana Jones. I really enjoyed the theater experience. I loved seeing it. It was, I think Harrison Ford still has the charm. I mean, what a gem of a, of a American gem that we have. But it does feel like this, what you're speaking to about the last decade and the sort of like move towards more conservative, quote unquote, sure bets. Obviously, we see that with developing IP, but also leaning on these legacy movie brands that originally do come from like very traditional studio movies where they're taking risks. I mean, Indiana Jones was developed by like Spielberg and George Lucas, and they wanted to create their version of James Bond playing on these serials. Like it was, it was coming from a place of like pure movie creativity. And then when you read about the productions of those earlier films, I mean, God, that is that is studio magic. And that's what I think studios used to be able to do. And, and now it's feeling like this sort of almost slow-moving, bloated, like lo- lost its zest for both in the movies that we're seeing coming out, but also in the general approach. Like we're not taking risks. We're not seeing too many original ideas or... You know, I'm so glad that No Hard Feelings came out at, you know, original IP or I guess based off of a Craigslist ad, but but we're not seeing that same spark in the delivery of these like existing legacy films. Well, it's also just it's really hard like figuring out what to do with legacy properties is complicated, right? Like the reason why Indiana Jones is like the Dial of Destiny, I felt like was a legitimately interesting movie, and there's fun stuff to unpack there, is because they writing a good screenplay is hard enough. Writing a good screenplay with all of the weight of fan expectations, yes. with all of the character development that has already happened in the previous movies, trying to make it rhyme with the previous movies without feeling like you're making it repeat the mm-hmm. like it is such a challenge. And so when it works, I think it is magic that people really appreciate. Right, right. But when it, you know, it like, it is just this odd thing that we're in this space right now where people view that as a safer bet as opposed to viewing it as inherently risky. Whereas you look at something like Asteroid City. Now, obviously, Wes Anderson is a very interesting case. Wes Anderson is one of those people who's really fulfilled the John Waters advice. John Waters advice was always make yourself the star and build an audience that wants to go see a John Waters movie. Mm -hmm. Because then you will not be at the mercy of celebrities Yeah. in order to finance your movies. Now, Wes Anderson obviously has an audience of people who will see Wes Anderson movies. It is also a star-studded extravaganza with Scarlett Johansson and yeah. Jason Schwartzman and Tom Hanks. So it's not like he has no stars in his movies. A lot um, of stars. But, yeah. A lot of stars with little parts. Yeah, but oh, very little parts. That is a movie with many, 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 many small parts. But, you know, it broke. You know, people forget that with on six screens only it broke per screen averages for the year it was you know the record setter for the year $131,000 per screen it made its opening weekend it only opened on six theaters but $131,000 per screen is a huge amount to be making per screen yeah and doing this older release model where it rolls out in a smaller number of theaters it's you know it's a rocket ship it's made 40 million dollars right now it's it's on its way to profitability, hmm. despite not having 
you know, any the traditional legacy IP. studio, sure bets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all and not being, you know, Asteroid City Four, which like I would watch Asteroid City Four. I think that would be <laughs> fascinating. I would love to see that alien some more. Right, yeah, what but, is a Wes Anderson sequel? I mean, in some ways, they're all Wes Anderson sequels. Fair. Like, it's such a coherent universe. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's sort of interesting to think of, you know, I, I don't tend to, I try and tune out box office, but I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of interesting things to think about for filmmakers as we look at all of this and the things we're trying to do. Like, you know, the Indiana Jones did a really good job of of dancing with audience expectation. Mm-hmm. Like, they cast Phoebe Waller-Bridge and the entire internet. Great. Who's one? I mean, she's magic in everything she does. Come on. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, the whole internet was expecting her to be sort of a woke scold that was like teaching Indy how to, you know, modernize. And instead, she's like a criminal thief. Yes. And and is absolutely a delight and is absolutely a joy and an interesting provision. But then there's also odd pacing things. The pacing. Yes. I mean, they... They do this thing that a lot of modern movies do where it opens with like three back-to-back chase scenes. And honest to God, by the end of the third chase scene, I was like ready for the plot to start. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I feel like I've just had an hour chase scenes. And then it slowed radically down. Right, right. And I was like, at some point in prep, shouldn't you have moved that third chase scene later? Yeah. It was such an odd choice. I, I totally it's, agree with the the pacing in a lot of these epics, these movies that are purporting to be, you know, the big studio movies, whether it's The Little Mermaid or Indiana Jones, like it feel this bloat, this slow bloat is there. And I'm like, what is the, what is at the, the root of this? Is it that the director is losing perspective on pacing and on the feel? Is it that for some reason we're valuing length? And and the thing, I think this was my one, I really, again, I really enjoyed Dial of Destiny. I felt this bloat in the storytelling and I felt like it was missing the Spielberg zest. Like where were those like quick little moments? We had some of them, but but it felt like we had moved away. And obviously it's a different director, but it felt like we had moved away from this like fundamental tone of Indiana Jones, like with the pacing specifically. Well, it's just one of those things too, where like you can't fix, like once you've shot the movie and you're in, you know, editing, you're always massaging the Mm -hmm. pace. Right. But I don't, I cannot imagine what they could have, you know, you always hit that point when you're in the editing room where you're like, okay, well, unless we go nonlinear, like these are the, the order the scenes are in. Right. And so there's not a lot we can, and like, Fundamentally, they have three epic chase sequences that open the film, and then it slows down. And it's such an odd, like, that's an early in prep process. That's like during the scripting and development process, it was built like that. Yeah, And you're like, it, it is one of those weird things where you're like, but it's a choice. You know, John Wick, the second John Wick did that, where it opened with like that, like, it opened with a long enough chase sequence, that motorcycle chase in the second John Wick, where there was a moment where I was like, oh, fuck, is the second John Wick just going to be one long chase? Like, I looked at my watch and we were an hour in and it was still the opening chase. And I was like, fuck, are they just doing it? Is it just going to be like an hour and 40 minutes of chase and that's the movie? And I, and then the chase ended and there was a whole fucking plot for two hours. And I was like, what the fuck? 
It's such an odd decision in terms of like balance. And I was watching it and I was like, this is one of those things that I, it was very hard. It was very hard to understand at what point in the decision-making process, it would have been so early in prep that like that started to take shape Mm -hmm. where I'm like, this is, this is a lot. Yeah. But here's the thing. I wonder if, if you are under 25, it feels differently. Hmm. Like this is always one of those things, you know, they say your taste buds change as a teenager and you don't like sweet food as much anymore. Yeah. And so like a lot of those sweet foods are targeted at 14 year olds and not at adults. And that's why it tastes weird. And I, I really do wonder like, do 16 year olds love opening with 45 minutes of chase before the plot starts? That is such, I, I mean, know. the TikTokification of these films, but it feels, it feels like the, the idea behind that, if it's, if it's attention span we're worried about or trying to dial into as filmmakers, wouldn't it make more sense to jumpstart the story to engage you and move the plot and story fast? Yes. But like, I don't know. I, maybe it's this confounding of like, People love video games. Video games are very successful. Let's sort of lean into that. And like, that's not even talking about the de-aging of Harrison Ford in the opening of Dial of Destiny, which to me, I felt like I was watching The Sims and I kind of like disengaged Oh, it didn't work for you. It didn't. It didn't. There's this uncanny thing that just, I couldn't connect. And I just, I... I wonder if I had been aware, like if I didn't know Harrison Ford so well, I do feel like I would still feel that uncanny. Oh, interesting. So that actually completely worked for me. I walked out of it and I was like, the weird decision for me is they didn't de-age his voice. So he still sounded like Harrison Ford, but looked younger. And I was like, well, that's, that's odd. Why didn't they do the voice? Like, I didn't get that. Like, it's clearly a choice. Yeah. It's clearly like, and I was like, well, but, huh? Yeah. I didn't get the choice. And we know his but, voice. We know his young voice. Yes. And it was less gravelly. And they kept the old voice. And that was odd. But I actually felt like the VFX completely worked. I was literally like, I was ready to walk out of the movie being like, oh, okay, we're here. Something has broken where it is better and less uncanny valley-y. But I, uh, it's interesting. I, I wonder how, in general, the consensus is. I felt like it was interesting because it was less... Whereas in The Irishman, they kept going back and forth. So you were constantly reminded of it afresh. I felt like I settled into it Mm -hmm. where I got used to it and it was okay. And also, I didn't know if they used a body double or not or if Harrison Ford is just in better shape. Because the real thing that ruined The Irishman for me is watching like what was clearly a man in his 70s with a face in his 30s. Terrifying. That's horror. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, well, this is very odd. Like I'm watching him have a fight and I'm like, you're, you're like, that's a 70-year-old man having yeah. that fight. And there's a 30-year-old face. Whereas I felt like maybe they did a body double or or whatever. But I was like, oh, you're like more or less moving. You're not moving like, what is Harrison Ford, 81? He's getting up there. Yeah. So I don't know. It's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. It is, an, especially as this tool is about to be something that we all have access to. Mm-hmm. Like as, you know. AI is overrated. I am not worried about AI ruining all jobs. I'm not worried about AI starting a nuclear war. Like none of that is likely to come from AI soon. But the place where AI is absolutely coming really quickly is AI 
enhanced visual effects tools are yeah. are coming to the mass market. Like that's just that's not AI hype. That is already here. Yeah. The stuff you could do in Photoshop today that you couldn't do a year ago. The stuff you can do in After Effects today you couldn't do a year ago. We will all have some availability of de-aging tools in the next two or three years. And it is really interesting to think about like using these tools. If you haven't seen it, everybody should Google before after videos, TikTok teenage filter. Uh, if, if you haven't seen it, it's absolutely wild. It rolled out within the last six months or so, but there's now a teenage filter in TikTok where you can make yourself look like your teenage self. Oh my God. And it is, it's insane. It is. And it's just, it happens in real time on your phone. And so within a couple of months that will be available in post. And it, it's interesting as, you know, as anybody who's worked on a project, you're always like, anytime you work on a project that takes place over time, you're always trying to cast people to match and mm-hmm. cast people at different ages. And I'm very much in this place now where I'm like, oh my God, as these tools become, we, we had this convention all right, this is a bit of a digression, but whatever. If you listen to this podcast, you're used to this out of me. <laughs> if you go back and watch Deliverance now, there's a day for night scene in Deliverance that is ridiculous. Yeah. It is just, you watch it and you're like, how did you possibly think this worked? I cannot find any discussion. Like, there's not a single review I ever, I, I went on a deep dive about this once and I, I read a bunch of old reviews of Deliverance. I see no evidence that anyone in 1974 had any objection to it. Because we were trained, you're trained to watch a movie. Right. It feels natural, but you learn how to do it. People in the 70s just saw this ridiculous, it is obviously John Voight in the middle of like high noon uh-huh. and blue. <laughs> with um, shadows. And they're just like, with shadows and you can see the sun in some shots and they're like, oh, nighttime. Yeah. And like, it's just, it's 1974. They were trained for that. We have been trained for this convention of this actor is slightly too old or too young for this part. Like, we're casting a 50-year-old to play a 35-year-old. Oppenheimer, right? I don't think Killian Murphy... I think Killian Murphy is, in real life, older than Oppenheimer was when he was doing that, mm-hmm. I believe. And are we about to enter the phase in filmmaking? And this will apply to indie filmmaking just as well, where, like, shaving five years off Killian Murphy or 10 years off Killian Murphy is also part of it. Right, right. And I had that thought, look, like... You woke up in the middle of the night and you're like, it's happening. Well, I just like, I, you know, you're working on projects, you're doing prep on things. I'm working on a project right now about a character sort of in there. I'm writing something right now where like the character is 45, Mm -hmm. but the perfect actor is Steve Carell, who's 60. And like, I don't know if I'd ever get Steve Carell. It'd be great if I'd get Steve Carell. He'd be amazing. And like, and I'm like, you know, we've been doing these wild de-agings where it's like, I'm going to take an 81-year-old and make him 30. But like, I don't know. Are we in a point where it might be realistic to take a 60-year-old and make him 48? And like that, I don't know. It is an interesting thing. I, yeah. I had a lot of thoughts watching indie where I, and well, between indie and this TikTok before yeah. and after where I'm like, these are, these are interesting things that I think we would be denying ourselves tool sets not to explore. Right, on right. the flip side, I don't think people should be writing articles on the internet with AI. And I think that we need to be exceptionally careful about like AI generated images and mm-hmm. like the owner who has original ownership and, and creating these weird like aesthetic black holes where everything looks like deviant art. Like I think that, you know, AI is just a tool, but right. specifically de-aging. And the reason why it's, you know, to go back on another of my random tangents, 
we're almost always taking advantage of technology that was used for something else in filmmaking. Like it gets built for something else. Like most of the optics research that's been done in the last hundred years is not for filmmakers or even photographers. It's Mm -hmm. really for like medical imaging and and stuff like that is where all of the bulk volume of that is. And then we take advantage of their improvements in our tools. And literally, it's just the obsession of social media with making people look younger. Right, right. And then we can take that technology, TikTok will license it to After Effects, and we'll be able to use it in After Effects. Which we (sighs) should be doing. We should be pushing the tech to innovate on the ways that we're telling stories like how what better way to approach filmmaking than you know the citizen kane approach you know they were pushing and using the cutting edge technology to make that movie and we should be innovating in the same way i'm not gonna lie i'm going to miss people in their 30s playing high schoolers by and they're doing a flashback and they put a actor actress in a wig with bangs and they're like there she is she's a high schooler like that there's something you know talk about uncanny but something that just delights me about that and 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 I think that as long as we're aware that this I I do think that there's value in having the audience be aware that all of this is happening like there are we've talked before about beauty editing and and i think that that is going to become even more of a just a accepted norm but i do hope we also find times to cast characters and let them be old and let them be themselves and let them have cellulite and you know i, I so i'm torn on these tools in that i don't want us to overuse them but then part of me is like it's a movie everyone should be beautiful well it's also one of those things where you know the yeah, i mean everybody should really watch these before and after tiktok videos one of them was made by a photographer and she was like the reason why i'm making this video is because i'm a professional photographer i take photos of people for a living mm-hmm. and i have been struggling with making photos of people that are accurate and having them show me their TikTok selfies and are disappointed that my photos are not living up to their TikTok selfies. Ugh. And so sad. like, and I'm like, and so, you know, people are gradually getting to the point where they're starting to think they look like their TikTok yeah. selfie. Yeah. Which is, yeah, there's layers of, that's complicated. Yeah. That's no good. Yeah. It's so dysmorphia. It's based on, if you're primary, if you're not looking in mirrors much, or, and also we all know, look, we 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 all know we look different in photos than in mirrors. Yeah, and you get used to this sense of what you look like in a photo, and now there's this expectation that you are a professional photographer to do like a photo shoot with you, and then you don't look like you're, and like it's it's a great before and after because the woman is sort of like she has the teenage filter on herself, and then she turns it off, and you're like you're a different person. That's yeah. not the same person. Yeah, there'll be a why dating on apps is dangerous. You never know what you're really gonna get. Yes. Yes. I have a question just to go back to the Indiana Jones umbrella, but but what are some of the lessons that indie filmmakers can take from indie? I mean, I think that when I look at what's interesting to me about the Indiana Jones franchise and what I think is relevant for independent filmmakers, the big thing is thinking about 
where technology is going to allow you to do things that you wouldn't be able to do previously. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we, we think about that with big filmmakers, but I think that, you know, also a lot of times, you know, Kane was a low budget movie, but also in the last few years, like mastering some of these tools and giving yourself the ability to do some of that, I think is something that, you know, it will change the way you think about a project. You always right. are designing a project based on the resources you have available and getting up to speed on what these tools are and where they work and where they don't, I think is very relevant. And then I think the other thing that I, I walked away from thinking is how early pace is analyzed. Critical. Like, yeah. yeah, you have to think about pace at the screenplay development stage. Because I guarantee you at some point in post-production, they talked about the, the odd pacing lull in indie, where that all of a sudden they had a lot of plot to get through. And it was relatively late. And they were still introducing new characters. Right. And then the other thing that I would really walk away from looking at the new indie is character introductions, is that the way in which a character is introduced and, and what you are given in a character introduction and how that pays off later is the other thing that I thought was like very well done in this movie and something to think about. Was there one uh, character introduction where you were like, brilliant, brilliant work? No, the actually the the opposite is true. The one character introduction where I was like, what? Antonio Banderas plays a character who you would not know Antonio Banderas, who is a huge movie star is yeah. in this movie. He's not in the marketing. It is forgotten about for some reason. And his character is not introduced. Like he just shows up. And they're like, oh, this guy, he knows this guy. And you're given no, and you're like, what happened? And literally, I think it was a pace issue. Yeah. I think they probably had character introduction, but he's introduced so late that I think they were like, well, you know, we could cut his character introduction and, and get moving a little faster here. And it's so weird because you're watching it and you're like, there's a character introduction missing here. And you did so much, like, it's so much so work odd. to get to this yeah. part. I assumed that he was in another indie movie, Indiana Jones film. And this was a character that we already knew because he was like, my friend, this guy. Yeah. And yeah. and we had a little bit of that. And then I was like, well, I guess I forgot about that because I only own Temple of Doom on VHS. And that was the one I watched over and over and over and over and over again. So I was like, well, he wasn't in Temple of Doom. So maybe I just forgot. <laughs> also yeah, thrilled that you like Temple of Doom. Oh, I, I mean, I like the first three indie movies are great. I like Chris, Last Crusade the best because I feel like Last Crusade has the best character arcs for both Indy and the dad. I feel like there's like yes. the deepest emotional stakes there. Totally. And um, what about, talk about best character introduction, the introduction oh to God. the dad. Banderas was born in 1960. He could have, he would have been 26. Maybe he had a part that we didn't know about in one of the indie movies. We have to go back and recheck. But I also, I, I've taught like, the Raiders of the Lost Ark is also just like almost a perfect movie and is so much fun to teach because there's so much there. Yeah. It's such like a rich text for unpacking. Really. Can I just make yeah. a case for Temple of Doom though? Because I know sure. Spielberg has renounced that film. But he's renounced it? Yeah, he, he says said, no, it was a mistake. Remove it. <laughs> he's like, it's really? too dark. It's too, you know, it's 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 but I was reading this last night. Both Spielberg and George Lucas were going through divorces at the same time during this film. So I think they were in a funk. And so I think that he goes back, he looks back at it and he was like, bad time in my life, bad movie. Not unable to disconnect that. It's actually a very fun movie with an epic third act and just like these fun set pieces. Also, 
it is very racist and that is problematic and that's a whole separate thing. But the he did say that it was his favorite villain. So I think that um, it's worth a rewatch. Uh, a really flimsy female character who Spielberg ended up marrying that actress and they're still together. So I'm happy they got their happy ending. But, you know, definitely, definitely not a well thought out, you know, female lead, not a typical indie film. But there's some good stuff there and some horrifying stuff. I can't believe I was allowed to watch that movie when I was a kid. Yeah, that is a movie. I mean, I watched that movie when I was like seven and I absolutely still think about that heart beating in that guy's hand oh. all the time. Yeah, it it haunts my dreams. <laughs> all right, let's move on to a little bit of a strike update. Now, obviously, we're not going to talk about the strike too much because the SAG deadline is Wednesday. It's Monday as we record this. It won't be out till Thursday. So, you know, why why talk about a thing that's less relevant? What I wanted to talk about really quick with the strike is that one of the biggest complicated things of all strikes is deciding who is in a union and who is not, right? It is really simple at a Ford auto plant. Management should not be in the union because management's not in the union, but then everybody working the line should be in the union. So it doesn't matter if you're paint, doesn't matter if you're assembly, doesn't matter if you're final check, you should all be in the union because it's you versus management in terms of building hours. Simple, clear. The film industry is way more complicated in that we have directors and we have producers and we have writers and we have actors and they all have different needs and different wants, which we already Mm -hmm. saw with the fact that the DGA already settled because the DGA's worries about AI are way different than the actors and the writers. The writers and the actors are facing huge catastrophic changes based on AI. We I already know actors who have had their performances changed by AI in post-production unlike big movies. I know people, it has happened to, it is happening. It is a thing. It needs to be in the contract. What can be done? What can't be done? And, you know, I know SAG and WGA are bringing in experts in AI Mm -hmm. to negotiate specifically around these issues because it is a, it is a thing that these two groups are taking really seriously. The DGA doesn't see it as much of a threat. And frankly, I don't feel like it is as much of a threat to directors yet. Five or 10 years, who knows what will happen with technology. I'm, I, I feel like it's okay that the DGA is less worried about AI. It's the DGA's job to worry about their members. But unity is what makes us strong. Yeah. And so watching, you know, the SAG actors have been out on the picket line with the WGA. WGA has been very supportive of what SAG has been asking for. SAG was originally supposed to be done July 1st, and they pushed to July 12th. I think at least partially because if they pick it, they don't want to be picketing on a holiday week because that's complicated. Yeah. But Unity is the big thing here. And, you know, just the goss we should talk about. We, sh- we should touch a little bit on the Warren Light versus Ryan Murphy thing. You know, Ryan Murphy was continuing in production on three shows. Mm-hmm. And you, production wasn't officially shut down anywhere. Writing has been shut down. Right. The, to argue that no writing was happening is complicated. Yeah. Right? Because it's three shows and were, was all the writing finished before they went? And who knows? But you know, it's possible. They were, yeah. And then a little bit of a Twitter argument broke out between Warren Light, who is one of the EPs on Law and Order SVU, and they were a strike captain for the East Coast branch. And they've been targeting some of the Ryan Murphy shows and a little bit of a kerfuffle broke out. And, and I just want to reiterate that like unity is everything here. Unity is the only opportunity that we have to try and exert any power. And so it's a complicated thing as we look at. The thing to unpack about all of this is how complicated it is that like 
Ryan Murphy is simultaneously a writer and grew as a writer, but now is a producer. And this has always been, this is not like a one-off, this conversation. This is a, this is film. Mm -hmm. Like we are all these different things, which make it really complicated to navigate all of this. And like, I guarantee you, every single person who's criticizing David Zaslav right now, somewhere in their calculation of what they can say is the fact that they might be pitching a project to Warner Brothers in the future. Right. Right. And that is complicated. But so I just, you know, I want to applaud everybody who's out there who is working their damnest to try and make sure that we actually have a career in an industry to continue to join. And we will see where we are next week. Or in a couple of weeks, we will be checking in to see where we are with SAG and everything else. And then with that, yeah. we've got an Ask No Film School. Well, this comes from Brian Smith. He says, greetings and salutations. I'm a longtime listener and a fan of your podcast. Someone gave me a Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 6K G2 Canon EF with Sigma 18 to 35 millimeter accessory bundle as a gift. Needless to say, I am beyond excited for this camera. My last camera was stolen while working on a gig back in 2020. So this is a huge moment for me. I also want to be responsible and take care of my camera. My question is, do you have any recommendations to insure equipment like this? I previously had business insurance through a popular company that said they were good neighbors, but was unable to replace my camera when it was stolen. Thank you for taking the time to help. P.S. I look forward to signing up for the No Film School Cinematography course when finances allow. Well, that's awesome. I'm very excited to hear that you want to take the course. It was super fun to make, and I'm glad that people are still out there interested in it, and I hope you get a chance to take it. Ensuring your gear is really important and is absolutely something that everybody should be thinking about with their gear, and everybody should be aware that your normal homeowner's policy is almost never going to cover you for film gear. And the reason why is it's considered a professional good, mm-hmm. not a home good. So I it, it can go either way if it's stolen from your house. If you have your film gear in your home, I've heard stories where there's a break-in and things are stolen and their film gear got covered. I've also heard stories where there was a break-in in the house and the film gear didn't get covered because that was considered to be your professional equipment. If it is outside of your home, you are almost definitely not going to be covered by any homeowner's insurance policy or anything like that. So you definitely want to get separate insurance for your gear. That's very important. You also should really check the one thing I always want to flag on all gear insurance is you always want to check where it's going to cover you. For instance, many professional film equipment coverages do not cover if it is locked in a van or in your trunk. Yeah, because they view that as being the responsibility of your car insurance, not your insurance. So like if you're on a big production in New York or L.A., you don't park your truck on the street or in a normal parking lot. You park it in what's called a bonded lot. Mm -hmm. The big one in L.A. is Raleigh Studios. And you always park it there because they have a security guard and they're bonded and the insurance covers the gear while it's in the truck in that parking lot. But I had a buddy who had a whole bunch of film gear in his trunk and went into his restaurant. And somehow people magically knew to break into this guy's trunk. And stole stuff from his trunk and his insurance didn't cover it. And his car insurance also didn't cover it. It became a whole mess. So you want to really read your policy and, and know where it is covered. In terms of insuring your gear for your own use, there's a couple big ones. Athos, My Gear Vault, Heffern and Cats, and Insure My Equipment will all do like a yearly policy to cover your equipment. 
you list what equipment you have and its value. Um, they all do a lot of film stuff. You know, I, it's, it's a good idea. You should probably be expecting, I don't know, five to 10% of the value of the gear in a yearly insurance policy. I think that's a good estimate range. I think I'm currently paying. <sighs> yeah, I'm currently paying about 4% per year. Yeah, that's a good estimate. 4% per year is how much I'm paying of like the value of my gear that I'm insuring. That's how much I'm paying to insure it per year. Might be a little more. And does um, this let you sleep at night when you're not frightened by the Temple of Doom heart thumping scene? Yes. I mean, okay. to the extent that anyone with a kid gets to sleep at night, <laughs> I, I feel like my gear is covered. Yes. Now, there's going to be a deductible. So, it you know, it's not really going to cover you for like a scratch. It's not going to cover you for the little stuff. That's mm -hmm. just normal wear and tear on a package. But your gear drops out of the side of a balcony on a shoot. Your gear gets stolen, that kind of thing. It should all cover. However, there's one glaring area that they do not cover. And that is voluntary parting. And mm -hmm. I talk about voluntary parting on this podcast probably once a year because I cannot talk about it enough. And voluntary parting is when you rent your uh. equipment to someone and the person you rent it to steals it. Damn. And your insurance will not cover you for voluntary parting because they do not consider it theft. They consider it fraud. So if you're on your shoot and you have your camera on a tripod and you turn around and somebody grabs it and walks away, that's theft. If you rent it to someone and on their shoot, someone sneaks onto set and steals it, mm -hmm. that's theft. But if you rent it to someone and the person you rented to steals it, that's not theft, that's fraud. Because you entered into a contract with them to rent them their equipment and they didn't return the equipment, so they violated the contract and that's fraudulent, not theft. And your insurance will not cover you for voluntary parting. Now, which do is why, the rental platforms have any? Yes. Okay. KidSplit and ShareGrid both offer voluntary parting coverage. You have to pay extra for it. I think I think it's like an extra ten or fifteen dollars. Always take it. Always take voluntary parting. The exception will be if you're using it with a platform with someone you know all the time. I have a bunch of weird stuff on those platforms because I've got weird shit. And so, like the people who rent my weird stuff, I know at this point. There's like people who like every eighteen months have a need to rent my weird thing. And I know them, and I don't do the voluntary parting because I know them at this point. It's like, fine. You just run it through ShareGrid. ShareGrid takes its cut. I hand over the thing. It's fine. But anybody you don't know, take that voluntary parting. If you don't mm -hmm. know them, you it is it is a thing that people do where they rent something on ShareGrid, and then they sell it on eBay or Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace to get, to get that money. So you want to be very sure that you have voluntary parting if you do any rentals. You don't have to do any rentals. You can just own your gear and not rent it out. But if you do rent it out, you want to be very careful. And don't you sometimes like do a little vetting where you have a conversation with the person? I, I remember you telling me about like just some of the geeking out conversations that you've had with people that you rent to. I mean, for me, the, the, the longstanding tradition in the film industry is what's called a checkout. Mm -hmm. where, you know, I remember going to Claremont camera for the first time. And like, I thought I was going to be in and out in like half an hour. I was going to pick up gear, but then like, you know, anytime I asked for something, it took 20 minutes for it to arrive. And all of a sudden I was there all day and you're just <laughs> hanging out and you go over all the gear and you check everything out. And that's how film industry works. And anyone who rents anything from you, you should put aside time in your day to go through stuff with them, make sure they understand it all, look at it all, maybe take photos with your cell phone of the condition it's in on handover. Anyone who doesn't want to do that, you should be suspicious. Yeah. 
because most filmmakers should do that. And when you're renting from other people, you should do that. You should get to know the package, take photos of the condition it's in when you're getting it. So that, you know, if there's already a scratch on it, you don't want to return it and have someone be like, you scratched it. And you're like, it was already there. If you just take a bunch of cell phone photos as you're handing over the gear, you've solved that problem. And that is a, it's a vibe check, but Mm -hmm. it's also like a chance to nerd out with people and network with people and see what's going on. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you, Brian, for this Ask No Film School. And I hope people continue to send their questions our way because it's so fun to be able to support. Awesome. All right. Where where can people find you on the internet? I am at Lost in Graceland at, at ggHawkins.com. I also want to shout out to a writing lab that is accepting applications called the Her Arts Lab. This was the first lab that I ever did, and it takes place in Italy. And not only was it like a sort of mind-blowing experience from breaking story perspective with the, the writing mentors there, but also we just ate amazing food and sat around every meal with other writers. And that conversation was incredibly nourishing as well. So nourishing for your writing, nourishing for your soul. Her Arts Lab in Italy, definitely recommend writing at a villa in Italy. That sounds great. Really I would totally good. like to do that. That sounds wonderful. There was a baroness who came to see us. My God. All right, people. Uh, apply to that magic all right i am on the internet at mastodon charles and barbecue soon i'm doing more youtube stuff I, I i decided my i'm gonna pivot to doing like more quick and dirty youtube stuff without yeah. as much thought just like get it out there stuff out yeah, yeah, yeah. and we'll, we'll see how that goes but cool. i'm trying to like i don't know just be a little more lo-fi and like make stuff drop it on the youtube without worrying as much about it because i feel like that's the youtube voice yeah and so like shouldn't i just Lean into the YouTube voice. I also think that folks just want to hang out with you, Charles. So the more the more out there, the better. Why, thank you. <laughs> All right. Very cool. I will see everybody on the podcast soon. Bye. Bye.